Welcome to the Human Odyssey, the podcast about human-centered design. The way humans learn, behave, and perform is a science, and having a better understanding of this can help improve your business, your work, and your life. This program is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. So, let's get started on today's Human Odyssey. Welcome to our first edition of the Human Odyssey podcast. I'm your host, the CEO of SoFix Synergistics. Um, we have a really great episode today called Fattening the Curve, the Science Behind Risk Perception and Des- Decision Making. I'm really looking forward to this topic. I think it's going to be a fun one in light of what's going on today in the COVID-19 world. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Jennifer Fogarty. Um, we have a long history together, but she has had a very illustrious career at NASA Johnson Space Center. She, she's currently the NASA Human Research Program Chief Scientist. And in this role, she leads the development and oversight of the HRP, which Human Research Program portfolio of research projects that help support um, human um, space exploration by assessing risks and trying to buy down or mitigate those risks. Um, prior to that, um, I had the good fortune of working with Jen in, in a different type of role, more in the innovation and strategy realm at NASA Johnson Space Center, where we were responsible for helping the agency develop uh, more open collaborative um, tools, as well as the Center of Excellence for Collaborative Innovation. So welcome, Jen, we are so glad to have you here. And again, I'm, I'm really excited that you're our first guest, and I think this is going to be a fun conversation. Thank you, Cynthia. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm really honored to be on your first podcast. It's incredibly exciting. Uh, you're quite achieved yourself, so you've come a long way. And uh, it's been exciting to see your company grow and accelerate uh, medical care and human factors in aviation and medicine. Um, I think it's an amazing uh, opportunity that you took and, uh, you know, this incredible entrepreneurial spirit. Um, so I am pleased to be here and excited about, uh, talking about risk today. Oh, you're making topic. me, you're making me blush. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, you know, we're, we obviously understand the world we're living in. We have a lot of, a lot of new things that we're doing for the first time, including working from home, trying to do podcasts from home, um, and, and, and protect for, for sound quality and content, um, delivery. But, you know, right now I think we have a, a really opportune moment to take a look at how the the country is dealing with the risks that are presented by COVID-19 and and how the world is responding to it and and also how we understand our response to risk Um, and I and I you know I'm kind of gonna lead in with that that general statement because I think it's a it's a Pandora's box of topics. <laughs> when you think about risk and understanding the science behind risk, I think you fundamentally have to understand, you know, what, what are the, the, the first few questions that you, you have to ask in understanding risk? Yeah, I agree. Um, it is a Pandora's box. And, and part of the complexity is the human themselves and their ability to judge you know, what the context they're receiving information in, their perception of the accuracy of that information, or just 
Um, I think in many cases, the information is provided uh, in such an inflammatory, <laughs> sensationalized way that that is another uh, tool that's used to um, kind of not just dramatize, but uh, imply criticality to information. And so humans are taking all of this information and we've clearly had our fight or flight response activated by this whole process. You have actually a biochemical response, <laughs> which actually plays a lot into your ability to, to discern uh, urgent from not. Um, and that can actually be preyed upon as well. And, and it may not be in a nefarious way necessarily, but um, it's a tool that's used because it's attention getting and grabbing. And so part of you know, my work with doing space exploration is to be very um, agnostic <laughs> about issues that I don't, I don't cast judgment before I have the data. And I think at this point, you know, a couple of months into this process, we're actually starting to arrive at what is legitimate data to reflect back on where our perceptions accurate before. Um, and I think that's an incredible point, right? So when, when all this, you know, first started or when we started to notice what was going on in enough depth, of detail to have some sort of response over the media, you know, some of the earlier reports, you know, in generalizations, you know, we are now figuring out we're not backed by factual data and just, you know, some of the early metrics coming back. And so I think, you know, to your point, you know, we have a heavily biased perception of risk from the get-go. So it, it's not necessarily even fundamentally where we may have started from a risk perception standpoint. Yeah, and that's completely appropriate to change um, your opinion over time based on new data. So it's never trying to cast aspersions or throw rocks at people in the past. I'll, a lot of the folks, you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that the information and kind of the... Um, you know, the very urgent response, you know, was there was a red flag raised. And I actually went back and watched uh, a, a uh, I guess, a press conference from uh, being hosted by the World Health Organization and them sounding the alarm uh, globally about this virus and the criticality of the issue and the, using the word pandemic um, and the threat to many societies uh, and people's health and well-being, you know, across the globe. Um, so it, then that happened in January, let's say early January, and trying to watch the data that was coming out um, from some sources who aren't traditionally very forthcoming with um, a lot of data. And then so you had questions about accuracy. You have questions also about how does one population um, reflect <laughs> on other populations, can you really extrapolate um, what is different about their lifestyle, about, um, you know, their genetics, their predispositions, their, their other disease states that they might have? How, how is their nutrition and how is their medical care all play a role in the outcomes? And the outcomes were really what was focused on, um, the primary outcome being death. And um, that was one that clearly, again, sets off the fight or flight response. If you are under duress of thinking a deadly virus is headed your way, and, and at this point, the medical community has no way to treat it, um, so you hunker down. You know, you go back and, and people very much, you know, responded to that and they went into self-preservation mode, which again is a very primitive human, human response. So you're dealing with, I got a piece of information, um, People around me who I trust, like government leadership, 
were also repeating that and, and talking about the urgency. So you were getting a lot of confirmation at the time that your perception was accurate and that that original information was was real. And really, I, without more data, um, I think from the numbers that were coming out from China, that you didn't have much of a choice at the time. Um, that, that was the information you had to work with. And really, to not take that conservative um, self-preservation approach, you, you were left very vulnerable because you, you could deny it, but if you were wrong, you could die. So, you know, that we also work in the risk world with likelihood versus consequence. And something still may not be very likely, it's far away, it's in China, the numbers, depending on what denominator you used, may not look that bad. But if the outcome, the consequence was death, I don't want to take any chance of that happening. You're not willing to tolerate any likelihood. So you're, you're, people are doing a lot of math, whether they think about, whether they understand that or not. You're running these calculations in the background um, as well as you can. And some people are really just looking for someone to tell them what to do. They don't have the skills you know, to maybe understand it on their own or know where to look for data that's other than what they've been told. I'm going to pull on that a little bit. I mean, all inputs aren't created equal depending on your past experience and your perceptions. And so I think, you know, very early on when we were getting conflicting information and data, one, we had an insatiable need to know what was going on. And to your point, what, what's the answer? What do I need to do? But then, you know, when we, we think about risk and our, our response to risk, there's, there was definitely two camps in the, in the very beginning. There was one that were very feel fearful and responsive to that, to that fear of, you know, um, I think the, the higher level, you know, more risky outcome of death. And then there was the other camp of, I don't believe this is true. Nothing's happening. And they, they could have been the, the, like the zero symptom, you know, person in the carrier, you know, just not seeing it around them, not having a past experience. And I think if I take one more step back and think of this as a pandemic that nobody in this generation or who is on the planet right now has, has lived through, you know, that all plays into effect of how we think about risk. And I think, you know, you probably have a really great uh, perspective to share when you think about spaceflight and trying to quantify, quantify risk and calculate outcomes in terms of behavior and how to mitigate when you think of spaceflight, because it, in a lot of respects, a lot of it is still unknown, even though we have an incredible amount of data. Yeah, right. So we work in, the, in a couple of different, we call them like sectors or camps of, of information. So you have the known problems. So in the analogy of spaceflight, we, we're dealing with human beings. So we're, we're sending human beings who have um, who can be kept very healthy. Um, we know a lot about their health, but we all have some probability of disease or problem. Like you could wake up tomorrow with a toothache and an abscess, you know, like things can happen very quickly and your state can change. So we study a lot about those known problems and things we can detect where um, we have a lot of um, evidence-based decision-making and medical care um, that can lead to really good outcomes if you can apply those treatments. If you can get the right diagnosis and you can apply the treatments, you, you could be at like a 99.999% cure rate. Um, then we have the problems that we're not so clear on what the solutions are. So this, and the analogy in terrestrial medicine, medicine on earth would be, well, you, you come down with virus-like symptoms but we don't have the test to measure the actual thing. So this is the case of you come down with symptoms like fever, maybe vomiting, you're tired, you know, flu-like symptoms. You go to um, 
the emergency room or an urgent care or wherever you can get a test. And now we have actually, I'll use the word luxury of these rapid flu tests um, in the office to confirm or deny what you have. And you'll have these symptoms that are very flu-like, but people will test negative for flu. Does it mean you don't have the flu? Well, it means you don't have the virus they test for. <laughs> and so this is where it's getting a little, you know, into the details, into the weeds of what science can do, what medicine can do, and what's beyond our limits. And people can be very uncomfortable with that because they're like, what do you mean you don't know? You're like, even with all the technology and capability and studies today, there's going to continue to be problems that we can, we can see but we don't have the data to really understand them. So those are the, the known unknowns. So we go off and do work. You design studies. You find the people who have the disease state. You measure things in them. You learn how to measure other things in them. I mean, it's an ever-growing field of medical diagnostics. Um, and with molecular work, looking at your genes, your, the way your genes are expressed, um, there's, then you go to the protein and how the protein protein activity. And then you go to, you know, protein on protein behavior and you can look at cells and tissue and, you know, it, the, it's almost limitless right now. I mean, the microscopic level and subatomic level we look at things is just expanding the measurement capability. Then you say, well, now we have to have a database where you say, well, because I measured it, now I got to learn what it means. And is it really connected to the outcome, like the disease right. state you have? Cause is it somewhere what I, I can only measure it, but I can't act on it. So that's a, a space our actual human research program works in essentially is the known unknowns. We have, we have risks, we have gaps, we do tasks, we have this whole architecture and framework that allows us to start to fill in those blanks. But what I think you were just getting at and where it really gets uncomfortable is called the unknown unknowns. Like I don't even know what to anticipate. I didn't see that coming. And those are the scary, they, sometimes they're called black swans in um, like in statistical analysis. Mm -hmm. It's like maybe if you had flipped a problem, and this is a lot of our work when we did open innovation together in crowdsourcing, was if I flipped the problem upside down and got a completely different look at it, if I had a completely, if I took my perspective but looked at it in a completely different way, or someone else who had a very different background could look at my problem, how differently they might see the opportunities there to solve the problem. So I think in this time, this virus has a lot actually it's been around for a very long time like and it's very confusing even to me and i always feel like i spent a lifetime <laughs> studying biology and physiology and now molecular and, and working with experts of all different fields but even i can't understand stuff sometimes i'm like whoa wait a minute what did that story just say what did that headline do and what is that journal article and you can't read journal articles fast enough they're just pumping out information but you you said it before like the quality how is it being vetted and how do I get confidence that what I'm reading is, is uh, a good resource, you know? Right. And depending on what type of consumer you are, what are you choosing as, as quality and what are you, you know, what is the, the path of least resistance in terms of consumption? Because we are in a state of information overload because the tactic right now is more information is better than less, but you know, I don't necessarily subscribe to that because there, there's, um, there's a tipping point where you just can't intake anymore and you can't discern, you know, to your point, what is quality versus what is just, you know, 
you know, trash in. <laughs> yeah. And some of the modeling. So another part of what people are, you know, and I think, okay, so I'm going to touch on a couple of things you said, because even we have to NASA, the human research program, the chief scientists, me have to make some decisions about quality and we have other people help us. Right. But you're like, who is a trusted source? Cause you're right. I can't as one human being, um, absorb all of the different disciplines and areas of evidence. And, and you're like, okay, so how, what strategies could we use? So people do make choices about, well, what news outlet do I really trust? And, and, and sometimes it tends to be on an emotional level. Like they, they are putting out information and they are people like me and we think alike. What you should do though, every once in a while is challenge yourself, watch something that you think is totally against what you would do just to get a sneak peek at like, well, what does the other side think and where are they getting their information from? It's not that you have to agree or disagree, but just get exposed to diversity. Pick up some of those brain cells for argument's sake. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think it, it is very enlightening if you can step away from the idea of being judgmental about it to, to listen to how someone might put information out or how they would interpret it. Cause that's a lot of what's going on, especially in the media is they might be getting a fact from a scientist or a physician, but then they interpret it and they will put it in a certain context. And that's when it starts to be um, it's changed. You know, it, it can ha- take on a very different meaning, very different than what the individual who gave them that fact meant by it. Um, so this is when I try to back out, even in, in stories that are news media are putting out, or, you know, what, what is the fact that's really being discussed here, not how they've colored it or changed it or interpreted it for me. And the other one, um, and I've seen a little bit of this back and forth, even between the communities, is social media versus news outlet. Because on social media, it's a lot of eye reporting, right? The, the, I saw this, I said this, I do this, and there's no filter. And I'm not saying the filter on the news media side is good, bad, or otherwise, but the criticism on social media is that there is no, um, there's really no quality control going on. It's just all out there for you to consume all the time. So if you go looking for it, you will find it. And there can be a lot of what's called confirmation bias. Like if I believe something to be true, or not, in the case you were saying, the polar groups of, if I think this virus um, thing isn't real and there's a conspiracy out there, I'm going to go look for information that confirms my, my, dis- my decision up front, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be atta- connected to that, I'm going to be attracted to it, and I'm going to find more of it. If I don't believe that, and I think this is a really deadly virus that no one knows what to do, I'm also going to look and find that. Um, the, the simple answer is it's probably somewhere in the middle, right? right. <laughs> like someone has manipulated things that are going on. There, there's always a little politics is clearly happening. Decisions and information is being colored by people who have agendas and they are. The data is really noisy. And so is the reporting. And, you know, to your point too, I think, you know, when we, we think about risk and whether we have a response or don't have a response to risk you know, all of those things factor in, but it, it's also our our belief, like you said, of what risk really is. And again, that's born out of a lot of other different things too that have nothing to do with data. And you will never change that based off of data in some respects, depending on the person you're talking about. Yeah, I think some people do ascribe to certain ideologies and those very much determine kind of how they approach all problem solving or all risk perception. So you brought up a really good point here that I probably should get back to with with the space flight and how we have to be very judicious and very agnostic and really look at the data and then 
interpreted in the context for which we have to apply it, which is an extreme, um, you know, exploration. Uh, it is the type of isolation and confinement that humans really haven't experienced before. Even what people are going through now, they're, they're getting some relevant um, perception of what isolation is. <laughs> but when you talk about a Mars type exploration mission, three years, four to six people in a single vehicle, unprecedented type exposures or lack of exposure. That's the other side of this is, um, mm -hmm. you know, how these things are factoring into you changing real time. So when you're talking about risk perception, you're saying when people don't have a, a most recent past, if you haven't been through, and I think you said early on, I think 1918 was the last qualified pandemic that hit the globe um, 102 years ago, very few people alive today that might've even been born and would they recall it, you know, even if they were born at the time and thank God they, you know, survived it. Um, so we have no, no context for this. So it's kind of, it's a little bit of a free for all, which is why I think there's a lot of particularly noisy time right now. And this thing generated a lot of fear very much up front. So we didn't have much time to actually accumulate data to get a, a more realistic picture of what was going on. People just jumped right to the, the worst case scenario because again, it was, well, if we don't, you know, the, the default position was, well, if we don't jump to the worst case scenario and we're right and people will die. If we're wrong, well, it was okay. We got past it. Now people are talking about the economic impact, which is not zero with respect to also morbidity and mortality and poor quality of life. So there, there, this is where the story is becoming um, much more complex with respect to risk. And even in spaceflight, you can't look at one risk at a time. And as COVID predominated our world and became the only thing we fixated on and everything was done to protect us from COVID, you could make the case at one point, maybe that was an appropriate response, but neglecting all other risks essentially for that case you're like, it, it's a bit of being in a vacuum and that's a dangerous position to be in because you always have more risk right? and you're trying to balance. Right. So for me personally and professionally, decisions were made. We all were sent home. You know, the, the agency wasn't going to take the risk of bringing us into the office every day. And they talk about, you know, the big issue being in a, in a commuting sense, like especially if you have mass transit, where you can get lots of exposures, being in elevators together, whatever it happened to be. And that was a pretty low threshold decision, right? With technology today, and it was not seamless by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but go home. And for the majority of us, we work um, with electrons and intellectual property. We're moving content. I'm not building widgets right now. Um, I'm, I'm trying to get information to the vehicle builders eventually, um, but they're still working on paper. They, they are still in CAD design phase. You know, for the agency, there were a few essential areas that were about the people being launched today to the physical vehicle today, which is our learning platform and our science could still go and be sustained. But at this point we were not in a position that we had to stop that work to be able to send an almost an entire agency, like many of the government agencies and private uh, sector went home, but other people were not so lucky. Um, and when you really start talking about that impact, it's not zero. Right. And I think too, when you bring up the risk and, and the out, 
the outcomes from one decision where we don't consider all of the fallout risks and what new risks we're creating. I think the expectation was because we had technology that we'd be able to continue on in some, in a lot of respects, you know, with work at the same pace. And I think, you know, big picture, not considering, um, you know, mental health limitations of isolation, the natural human need for, for interaction, and also the drain that technology actually creates that you don't have when you're doing human-human interaction was not considered. And so what, what we still saw was a, a huge deficit or decline in worker productivity or capability to where, you know, even, you know, even in our case, you have to set your, your expectations much lower and give a lot of um, degrees of flexibility to people because, you know, now you're expected to work from home where you're trying to take care of your kid, work with the pets, deal with what's going on when you normally don't have that. And so I think it's created a whole other risky environment that although it's not the same as being exposed to a virus, you're going to, you're going to have some physical sickness later on, you know, as, as yeah. time progresses from this. Oh yeah, it definitely, it, you know, it was, I mean, the, the word I would think is, is best used here is transformative. So mm-hmm. you, you transformed from one risk state to another. You, 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 your perception and priority was on reducing the COVID risk, which you accomplished, but you, you can't deny that we transformed to another risk state and we escalated other risks um, in the process. And that's really the discussion right now because the data is not looking as, as ominous. And, and I, you know, this is always a struggle um, for any individual who's actually suffered a loss, a family member who died from COVID. These conversations mean nothing to them, you know, like, and, and I've been there with losing people and you're like, I, I understand I'm, you know, the statistics say, but I'm not a statistic, even in disease calculation, like with the astronauts, you're like, oh, you only have, you know, a one in 500 chance of of X happening. You're like, but when it happens, going back to likelihood versus consequence, you know, it's still a pretty horrendous thing. So you never want to minimize, you know, and no no one I know is actually trying to do that, but it can look like that when you're trying to work with data and numbers and math, like you're not considering the human element but you go back into it. You have to kind of come out of it and go back into it to, to do your job well. Like if you're in that, in that field and you're trying to be a fair arbiter of data and help paint a picture that's more reality-based um, now that we do have experience with it rather than what's a lot of what was modeled and maybe modeled on very small data, which didn't extrapolate well, or data that um, didn't have a lot of vetting, so we don't know the quality of it. Um, and it didn't mean like people often report things but again, I think, and you've done this with like accident investigation, the human mind is an interesting um, <laughs> organ, right? So it fills in a lot of the blanks and it will remember things that were, were much more um, kind of sensational at the time. So when you look at either eyewitness accounts or accidents, um, you know, they're like, well, they, they were so dedicated to watching that one thing. They didn't see the 50 other things happening around them at the time. It didn't mean that they weren't there. Their perception of it though was just zeroed in on the one thing. So they only recall that. So right now you're dealing with people who run the spectrum of either they have actually suffered it, know someone who suffered from COVID um, or they just see these stories. And and I've seen, unfortunately, um, some of the stories being used in a more propaganda-like way. And it's still, it's not that it's not heartbreaking for a child, you know, to be suffering from COVID in the hospital, but that is one case study. Does that really represent, 
you know, a threat to society as the whole. No, you got to dedicate medical services to that individual. And that's what our medical system is designed to do. But to use that to scare everybody into thinking that's going to be their outcome. What would just, what was interesting in the story. And I, I would say, I don't know anything about the family. It's out there in broadcast news media. Now it came off of social media about, you know, have they verified that these people who are, they say they are, and this was what they said it was, you know, and that'll fall out over time. Um, but as a single case, you look at it and you're like, okay, so the child was very ill. The child got medical care. The other four people in the family, the, the two parents and the two siblings, um, apparently did not have anywhere near the symptoms. So they ran the spectrum of what you might see in COVID. So now we say, okay, in the world at large, when you were talking about sending people home, transforming the risk, now we're going to have to understand what risks have we escalated. One of them, I think very much that you pulled on was um, the psychological issues that are going to come out of moving people from a very dynamic and diverse kind of experience throughout their day that they were accustomed to, to a high degree of social isolation, um, which if you, you know, in the world of space, like we train people for that, they actually have to go together and experience that and experience it for significant amounts of time, weeks, months, they go on, they go to Antarctica, they go into the caves in Europe. <laughs> you know, these are very intentional experiences because you want to take it, you want to show the person, the stressor, and then you want to take them back out of it and debrief them. But you also want to give them tools and expectations going in so that they understand what they're about to experience. We all had essentially no notice, no training, and you just pluck people out of the life they knew and plopped them into a very different experience. And that's going to have some significant ramifications. And I'm so glad you brought that up because what I was what I was going to say to one of your points earlier is that right now we have a roller coaster of risk and there's no adapting to it because from from our perspectives by the time we we get used to one reality and what the risk is we're already starting to change and shift and you know case in point are all of the states opening at different levels and at different times and at different um, acceptance of risk parameters and so you're unlike a scientific study where you're controlling the variables or at least the known variables, you know, you can't control everything, obviously there's no control right now other than like the one element is we're trying to isolate people so that there is no, no spread. But again, there, there's so much else that goes into risk. And then, you know, to your second point, you know, when we think about how humans model risk or model their behavior in response to risk, it's largely built off of expectation. So if I have no understanding, no expectation, that primes fear and the flight or fight response. When I have some model and some understanding of how something's going to work, I have a little bit more of a foundation and logic base to kind of work through this you know, from the, the, the psychological standpoint more effectively for myself. Like I have tools in the tool chest, like when we think about space flight and, you know, right now, nobody has any tools in the tool shed and, and every, every what, four to six weeks, something changes and we freak out again, you know, for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think that's incredibly correct, perceptive, um, that, you know, people going back to people not having any most recent past experience to have context for this and then no, no guidance, no heads up. Um, and then the very different ways that, um, 
you know, leadership responded to it on a state by state, county by county, city by city. And there were a lot of mixed messages. Like who, who do I believe? <laughs> is it, is it, you know, total shutdown here? And, and you could start to understand, I, I saw some at least relevant stuff coming out about, you know, urban areas versus suburban or rural areas and why people are already not, you know, congested as much. So maybe the, the, the risk was lower and how much international travel was there? Where would this come from? I mean, the other part of this was that, you know, without people, a large percent of the population, let's say having a, a scientific background, particularly in the, the biology background was this, this virus doesn't have magical properties. <laughs> it, it may have some increased virulence, meaning that it's nastier when you get it, but it's definitely not magical. So it doesn't, it can't go from one place to another without some person bringing it there. You know, so you have to, and that, that went to like, they, I thought they used some terminology, which may deserved a little bit more explanation. Like transmission was about human contact. Right. And so if that was the idea of the social isolation and helping people understand what that was, but in a city, <laughs> pretty much the city goes on lockdown, right? It, in the suburban areas where I am, I'm lucky enough to be able to walk around in my neighborhood and easily keep six feet away from any other person, but I can get out, change my view, you know, experience fresh air. I mean, you're talking people in cities that are in 500 square foot apartments and haven't been able to leave for weeks, you know, and, and those, the ramifications of that are, can be incredibly significant. Plus the other part that was going on with um, kind of the transformation of risk in this case was people are not being able to deal with um, their pre-existing conditions as well, if at all. Um, and people who are on the verge of being diagnosed, a lot of things got pushed out. Um, you know, they, they stopped all screening, whether it be colonoscopies or mammograms. Um, and, you know, it's the, those things are timely and needed for a reason, right? We have a, a, an architecture and we have evidence to support why those things happen, you know, and are suggested to happen on a certain cycle. And there are people who are at greater risk. And you say, okay, well, does eight weeks matter? Well, it's going to matter for a couple of people just like the case study that's being used a very inflammatory way about COVID. If the COVID matters for that child, COVID, you know, breast exam will ma matter for a woman who will end up getting her diagnosis delayed or the person with, you know, polyps and GI cancer. So those, that's why the recognition came like, okay, when the medical system wasn't overwhelmed the way they thought it was going to be everywhere, you know, we social isolation might've dampened things down legitimately, but now we can get back and figure out, well, what's the safe way? Now we get into, well, again, let's go back to understanding this virus and our risk perception of it was, well, we talked about testing for things and looking for things. <laughs> well, we have a test for it. It doesn't have the greatest accuracy. I don't know what the numbers are now because the test has been improving over time, but it was like low as 80% accurate. Um, you got a high false negative rate, mm -hmm. which is the scarier kind of false or false negative is, is worse in this case. Um, Cause then you're going to have people who are infected going around thinking they're not right. Right. Um, the other one was the antibody test um, is still evolving. So that can detect if you've already had it, maybe you were very low to no symptoms, but that doesn't um, at this point confer immunity. You know, they were saying like, you could get re-exposed and still have a bad outcome. So there's just so much unknown and kind of the moving landscape of the data has been really hard to help, help people center themselves. And I think you mentioned something else about expectations. So just like lack of expectations for the social isolation led to a, a lot of um, disruption in your life, um, psychological impacts. Plus the other thing you mentioned, and, and 
I'm part of this, you know, your home, not teleworking by yourself in terms of productivity, your entire family's home with you. So it, you are moment by moment being pulled on, whether it be by a pet or a child or a spouse or something, it's just, and it's the boundaries aren't there. Um, even for me. And I did a little bit of teleworking, like it, you know, that was kind of a good idea every once in a while. Like I really had to get something down, get out of the office, go home, you know, they could get me on phone or email if they had to. But now I, I have a really hard time compartmentalizing. When does work end? When does home life right. begin? Right. Um, you know, the, the push and the pull of even during the day that if I have to stop and step away from work and go deal with a family matter, because that person needs my help, particularly a child, you're like, oh, but I got to jump back into work and I'll work a little bit later tonight to get back the time, you know, and it's just. Well, and we're completely um, disregarding the stress that we're under and the time that you need to compartmentalize just the stress and the situations in the world. Because, you know, again, media is media and not to throw stones, but we, all we see is depressing news most of the time. And so again, that has an impact on you. Cause again, there's also what we call survivor syndrome, right? Where you weren't impacted, you're fine. You want to do something to help, but there's really not much to do, but you're, so you're still stuck with this, this do nothing. And that has a really intense effect on some people. So, you know, I think we've, we've forgotten that working, working from home, like a nine to five is just not realistic. You might be able to be productive for two hours in the day because of like the mental strain and drain on you for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. I think that's very accurate in terms of, um, I know the first couple of weeks we were home, I definitely commented frequently and checked on, um, our workforce because I knew I could not focus, um, that it was, it was unfair to think that you could work an eight to 10 hour day and the demand was there because we use a lot of tools where you have to be essentially virtually in person at the meeting. Right? There's still that level of accountability, but everybody was trying to, I think, use that tool partly to say like, raise my hand. I'm here. I'm working. I'm, you know, I'm productive, but I think it's on leadership to step back and say, you know what, you, you need to take some time for yourself and your family to figure out the new way of operating. Since we couldn't set expectations going into this situation, it was relatively unanticipated from, from our perspective. I will say that um, years ago, I was familiar with the people even at our center, Johnson Space Center, working on pandemic tax, task force. I mean, and this has been discussed, you know, a little bit in the media, but as a global risk perception, it was again, likelihood versus consequence. And at times it's perceived so unlikely and it's overshadowed by your most recent experience, which could have been war, <laughs> could have been a financial collapse, that those things, it was the other phrase that we use at work and you're gonna be familiar with is the urgent overcomes the important all the time. So it's not right. that pandemic planning wasn't important, it just wasn't urgent until it was. Um, so everyone around the globe gets caught, you know, not as prepared as we would have liked to have been, or we think we should have been, but you got to step back and you're like, okay, we made choices along the way that said something else was always more important than that. Um, so we can go, we can go into the future very differently because our most recent experience will inform it, but you got to be so careful that you're always going back and using some tools. So this is maybe where we can get into tool use that you mentioned before. Because even in the space program, I mentioned, you know, the amount of information I'm pulling in from all of the disciplines, all the experts, all the studies that are generating data, 
and the studies are all slightly different. How comparable are they? How good are they? <laughs> you know? um, how, did, how well did they control the variables? Or they couldn't at all because it was field research, which is essentially going on in the world at large. So you, you use tools, right? And, and one of those tools are models. Models are fed by data. And then, you know, how determining quality of data. So you've got things like machine learning and artificial intelligence that are really present, but they're, to me, very hard to characterize with respect to quality and value. So you're like, okay, do we use machine learning to teach us? Like, can it, it start to ingest? And there's, you know, many companies out there um, kind of trying different tools between Google and Alphabet, the parent company, or IBM and Watson, and I'm not even going to be able to name them all off, but, but they're very interesting tools, and, they, and they've been able to demonstrate some pretty amazing capabilities to bring value of a ma or going through data and helping to understand, can they even, can the tools go in and make judgments by comparing, if you could label something, a good study? You know, if it got what's called, we go through peer review, we take a group of experts, they go in and read, and they score a study by design or even the output. We do peer review before journal articles. It's our best way of doing some vetting that's supposed to um, at least kind of normalize the fact that no one group can push an agenda because we're always um, making sure the team has a lot of diversity on it. So it's like, you know, you'll get one high score, one low score. We throw those out. We take the ones in the middle. It's kind of like when you used to see ice skating at the Olympics. <laughs> you take the high and the low out. And you're like, what did everybody else score to try to neutralize someone who might have a grudge against this? Or, you know, here's my favorite friend. You know, that's always kind of in the mix. But well, the there's always going to be some, sorry, some element of bias because you're, you're always you're stacking. Yeah, exactly. You're always the stack, stacking the, the deck based off of, to your point, the model. And so whatever reality that you're protecting for, and this is where we struggle a lot in design to make the right trade-offs, right? Because no matter what you do, there's always going to be something that you didn't protect for that's always a risk and have you you know, if you've successfully bought down all the major risks, you've created a new reality. Those are probably not going to happen now because you've so successfully, excuse me, mitigated against them. But now all the things that never happened, but they could, are going to be your higher risk um, outcomes sure. by default. And I don't think that that's brought up enough. And I mean, especially when I was working human factors at NASA and I would consistently have to go up with the safety boards, like, you know, some of the decisions that you make over time are going to make these risks that are low likelihood, yeah. low consequence, high likelihood, high consequence, because you've, you've taken away all this other stuff, but now we have no expectation, no model, no understanding on how to safe ourselves if they happen. Yeah. And you never have that conversation, right? Yeah, that, that is going back to like that transformative risk transformation that went unacknowledged. Right. Like we were so busy looking over here to the left when we shifted everything to the right, we were just satisfied that we weren't in the risk zone on the left anymore. <laughs> but now the work is like, go characterize what you just did, because that could be just as ugly. You just didn't do the work to know that. And, and things like that, again, it's, and, and these are human, human qualities. And you say, this is where I think um, organizational psychologists really come in handy. <laughs> if you were able to kind of step outside of yourself and reflect on your behavior, especially during an emergency. And I actually heard something from a politician, but it was very well-spoken. It's Dan Crenshaw, actually. And he talks about, and this has a lot to do with, he's a, he was a former Navy SEAL, he's been in combat. But 
you know, one of the things you really learn is to self calm. So before when we talked about, and you started getting into this was, um, when that fight or flight, um, response is tipped off in you, when you have information or an experience that makes you fearful, um, it may not be for your life, but you don't know that it is that there's a biological response that used to protect you from dying, right? <laughs> you know, like, talk, like getting eaten by the tiger kind of scenario. Well, it, it's pretty unlikely anymore. Most of us live in civilizations where we, we have a lot of latitude where we're not going to die of the thing, but how your heart is beating and how the adrenaline is flowing through your body and your eyes are dilating and your lungs are being, I mean, these, these are real physical things that are happening and you can feel them and they make you feel like your life is at risk and you will respond accordingly unless you stop it. And you have to have the wherewithal to know that it's not life threatening. I should slow down and I should really think about it. And this is, you know, when the very inflammatory news is being delivered in a context to get your attention and be sensationalized. So you'll watch this channel and you'll feel like they got you always on this, this very high adrenaline, you know, information pumped out. And you'll watch hours of this back to back, even though it's not a different broadcast, right? (laughs) Yeah. There's all kinds of studies definitely on the psychology side about the addictive um, mm-hmm. and just like social media, like looking at that screen, how many likes did I get? Did anyone look at my post? And you know, that confirmatory stuff that we seek. And that those are people really, the best term I have is like praying, you know, on those very, um, uh, integral, um, characteristics that human have that, that kind of make us easy unless you are taught and you, and you practice. Cause even, you know, I have a 12 year old and I'm like, I'm teaching him now, <laughs> like these, these moments where you have the opportunity to stop this cycle and check yourself, just like check your math problem. Like just be very deliberate. Like, okay, I'm getting really worked up. This is you know, very inflammatory. Like, is it true? Do, can I figure that out? Can I find another place where they're saying the same thing and they have other data to support it? Are there people who, you know, are trusted agents? And this is where you'll find people. And again, you have to be careful because you tend, tend to look for things that agree with you. But, you know, can you go find independent sources that help you confirm what it is you're hearing so you know more how to appropriately react? But the thing Crenshaw was really talking about, you know, and, and it is a technique used, like, yeah, calm yourself. And you have to check how your response is making you make decisions. And you have to think about when we were talking before, like not just looking at the left side, but also the right side. Like your job is to look across all your risks. So for any given family and their financial circumstance and their health circumstance, um, their safety, you know, in your house, in your home with, you know, your family, you got to figure out what's right for you and what data do you use to make those decisions? You know, um, this whole idea of, well, I got to go to the grocery store. Do one of us go or do two of us go? You know, um, we want to go out and get some fresh air. How many of us go? Where do we go? (laughs) Is the place crowded or not? Is that smart to do? Um, And I never pass judgment on anybody. There there are certainly things I I wouldn't do, but you know what? I'm not in their shoes. I don't really know um, what's driving them to that decision. Now, the only thing I think a lot of us are... um, responsible for is educating. And so I think this opportunity like to do the broadcast, if someone could feel more educated, I don't want to tell them what to think. I want to tell them 
what kind of resources they have potentially to use and people they could seek to just give them ideas about how to think through things. Um, and that was a way I was actually raised and have benefited from throughout my career. I didn't go to an Ivy League college. People, you know, they want to talk about, well, how did you get to be, you know, the first woman chief scientist of the human research program? And I'm like, well, you know, it was, it was an interesting route to get there. I took advantage of a lot of opportunities. I worked no doubt incredibly hard just as you had. Um, but the idea was I, I'm a pretty good critical thinker and problem solver, you know, and that's when I really dig deep. And so this for me, oftentimes when I was going back to like, even though you see some of these cases and, and these horrible experiences people might have had, okay, I'm not denying that, but let's go look at the big data to help make our decisions. And what's really leading us toward the future, not just perpetuating data we thought from we had the past. It's time to relook at the models. It's time to relook at the data. We've got data from this country from urban and suburban and rural areas. We have areas where they did lots of testing, not so much testing, incredible data coming out of Norway and Sweden, Italy and Spain. Um, and I think those are really important to step back and have kind of like a town hall for the nation. <laughs> um, Cause I think your point before too, of all the states doing different things, governors saying different things, the president saying mm -hmm. things, they are, the messages are so mixed that um, it, it can be paralyzing and until you help people calm down, let, let's look at what the data is telling us. Let's look at how you might interpret the data because you're still going to have to extrapolate to some degree. But what kind of information can be really used to make your next step, which is whether you're going to go out when there's 20, you know, in the state of Texas on Friday, 25% um, uh, capacity at malls and restaurants. I'm not sure how it's going to yeah. be managed. I'm <laughs> not sure how it's going to be managed. It'll be interesting to see. You know, but do you want to engage in that or do you want to wait till that's been out a little while, you know? Right. And I, and I think, you know, back to, you made a really, really strong point and I just don't want it to go un, un, um, highlighted here is that those who have really honed their critical thinking skills and have become able to be a little bit more self-aware and question their own reality and understand their own stressors and how they respond to good and bad, to be able to accept new data to change their opinion are usually the ones that are the survivors of, and they are the fittest. You know, if you think of the population on the whole, because they're the ones not reacting first, right? First to the party you never want to be. Maybe the second or the third, absolutely, because you've learned a few from watching everybody else and the, the mistakes, but also understanding, you know, to your point about data and using it responsibly, do we even know what data we've collected and do we know it? Like 90% of it is probably junk, where it's the 10% that's hidden that's also probably telling us there's a question we didn't ask. Yeah, so data analysis um, will be at a premium. I think understanding the quality of the data, of course, but yeah, there are many different ways that you could could encourage, you know, to, to find a signal that helps lead you down a path. And you're just going to have to keep looking and you're going to have to keep following different signals to see where this is going to take you. What is a better solution? Is it leading toward a vaccination? Is it leading toward, you know, using the antibodies? Is it... Um, you know, slow integration um, to, to more, I don't want to say normal circumstances, but less social distancing for people who are considered low risk. Now, the risk, the risk groups are shifting on an hourly basis. I, I've seen today alone, like three or four headlines come out, and I'm 
being told there's journal articles that are following. And my concern is, again, it's because people have measured things um, and now they're looking, so they're finding things. But you have to step back and say, is this really a caused by COVID or is this always been there? And now I'm just looking for it. So it happens to be there's right, right. that's also bias. Um, something you said ago a moment ago is really important because you used it before was the idea of adaptation. Um, so one of the things that makes humans incredibly resilient and uh, able to survive as long as we have the way we have is our ability to adapt um, to various circumstances. And that's something that I talk a lot about in space exploration because the body does change a lot when you go into space. The environment astronauts are exposed to is very different than here on Earth. And what I, I try to understand very agnostically is, is different the same, worse, or better? So in some cases, and I'll get back to the point here for folks, but everything that happens in spaceflight that is adaptive is not necessarily bad. But oftentimes I have people who are very dedicated to studying one area, particularly in the human body that I work with. And when they see change, their immediate response is to say change is bad. You know, it should go, it should stay the same. We want them earth normal. We want them never to be different than they were when they left. And I was like, that is a very unrealistic expectation and could actually be very harmful. So what's interesting with COVID to me is that it has been around a very long time. Now this specific mutation that's causing some of the things we're seeing, particularly with um, the pneumonia, maybe this version, this mutation is new and, and very different and damaging. But when I heard, for example, well, they found it in cats and now they claim they found it in dogs. And it was like, well, cause now you're looking for it. You know, right. it doesn't mean that, <laughs> that suddenly, like it's been around again, it's not magical. So, you know, I wouldn't hop to any conclusions about, you know, having your dogs or not having your dogs, like they're your pets, they're your family. <laughs> And they're not showing any symptoms. And it is very rare for a virus to jump species. So this is also kind of why that harbinger of bad came out initially was that the the understanding was in China that it moved from, I, I'm not even going to say because I don't, I don't even want to perpetuate that, but it, it, it was from a non-human to a human. Um, and then it was causing a high rate of mortality. Plus it was being transmitted between asymptomatic people. So again, you don't and have the and luxury. I think too that statement is it isn't and isn't because when you look at the numbers across the board and the people who have potentially been exposed and never showed any symptoms, I think that 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 statement is going to change drastically. Yeah. It already and, has. Uh, and, and again, I think the response too is there's probably multiple correct responses to this virus because of the the huge distribution of responses we've seen. It, it, it it's it's unusual in that sense. Yeah, it is and it isn't. So, and, and I appreciate that, but it, my background, uh, so I went through um, training as a cardiovascular physiologist and I studied um, heart disease, coronary artery disease in particular, um, the role of growth factors and exercise and, uh, you know, the way blood vessels grow and change over time when they get blocked and how to create collaterals. And I mean, it was just a fascinating field. And I, and I have just been awestruck by the human body since I was, as long as I can remember. And that's what drove me to do what I do today. Cause I, it, it is one of the most amazing machines ever. <laughs> it is unreplicatable. Um, you know, and it is, can be self-healing 
It can also have flaws. Uh, I mean, just unbelievable compensatory mechanisms. And when you talked before about adaptation, it was so important. I mean, not just physically, but um, mentally, cognitively, psychologically, emotionally, we're adaptive on so many levels. And there's interplay between the systems. You know, when you talk about what's going on in a human, um, you know, what's real is like, psychological stuff when people say they're depressed it's also biochemical like so people were like you know forever trying to treat it like it was just your your choice of an emotional state you know versus no i, I whether however it started out it could have been a biochemical problem <laughs> that became an emotional problem or an emotional problem that became a biochemical problem but then becomes a physical problem you know there are health consequences to having stuff circulating in your body when you're stressed all the time so well, we mind over matter, right? Too like you can actually make yourself sick by thinking it, and you can make yourself well by thinking of it. To to your point, so you know, yeah, point well taken. The the human mind, there's probably nothing more powerful than it, and and we don't know how to going back to measuring things. Like we can't even identify how it accomplishes those tasks in what way. You know, there's Eastern medicine is fascinating with how it thinks of the human body, and going back to you should seek alternate opinions and alternate thought processes and read stuff that you don't think agrees with you because it's going to challenge your mind. And when you mentioned, you know, being adaptive also is being willing to take in new data and it may change your mind and be open to the fact that what you thought before, although it was informed by the data of the time, if the data changes, you really got to reconsider your position. There's nothing wrong with that. Yes, it, it is, and I think that's so important because so much, so much of what goes on is because you've you've made a stance either politically or publicly, and you feel like you can't back down from it. And I and I think that is such such the wrong thing to do, especially when you're in a leadership position. Yeah, and we definitely live in a society um, that I think. <laughs> tends to use the media, social media, network media, and they use us in a certain way that if someone were to be informed with new data and change their mind, kind of the battle over, mm-hmm. well, you were wrong before. And you're like, I was right for the time. <laughs> I was right <laughs> with the data I had. Right. But, you know, I'm, I, I think leadership is about, you know, responding to the new data that's in your hand. Um, and seeking alternate opinions and alternate solutions um, and, and, and being very transparent about how that decision is being made and being a bit of an educator, especially if you want people like this whole thing with social distancing or social isolation, if you want compliance with something that's going to be really hard and transform into new risk, I, I think you have to offer up the rationale, a deep rationale for why. And that even if it is some of what I don't know, So going back to the early state of, we don't know a lot about this. It looks very deadly. It looks like it moves quickly in a population, particularly in urban environments where there's lots of congestion and people are in very close contact all the time. So (laughs) in order to gain, you know, time, and that's what they were saying. So, you know, the, the title of the podcast was fattening the curve because what I wanted people to understand, what I thought was always missing about the discussion was you know, they would show that a very initial, and it was a, it was a notional graph that was actually not, that was artistic rendering of information. (laughs) It it wasn't actual data, you know, so there should be data now. They should show you real graphs. Um, And I see a couple coming out from Department of Health, um, which are interesting. I I, I have my critique of them, but they're interesting. Um, But in that case, the, you know, the, the, the speak, the spike was very high. 
it, the, the graph was considered narrow so that they showed you a horizontal line that said, we're going to overwhelm the hospital system with all these cases that would need to be intubated. This is where many, many, many patients are going to go. Um, so they said social distance so that the peak wasn't as high. But the, the reality was, based on the laws of physics and physiology and immunology, was, well, you're going to have to have the same area under the curve, which meant that the spread of the curve was really long. And the length was about time, right? And so, you know, for us, in a world where we have, you know, instant gratification and 24-7 everything and delivery everywhere, especially in a first world country, the idea of several weeks to wait for something is just beyond our comprehension, setting expectations. Where well, and personal sacrifice, right? Because we are now in very much the me, me, me center of the universe type. Um, well, that goes back person. to context. Yeah, yeah. That, that we've lost a little, um, you mentioned a lot of important things, which I think investing in self-awareness uh, is incredibly important. Understanding that um, your role in the larger community, whether it be your local community or your global community, that it matters and that um, potentially looking outside yourself and your own needs could be important and actually have mutual benefit back. You just having to wait for that is, yeah. is again about, you know, you know, really yeah. wanting immediate You're, you're not the only one. And, and yes. you know, I think that's where some of those commercials of we're in this together is, is, is good, but I don't think we, we actually act on that you know, it's like walk your talk. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of hard when there's not a model of behavior that supports that in our culture right now. So these messages fall on deaf ears. And so, you know, well, again, did, mixed, mixed information. You tell right. me one thing, you do another, or you're changing what you say and do so quickly that I can't tell right. importance or right. what, what is this going to do to, in, to reduce risk for me, my family, my community, whatever it is you're right. concerned about. I think the best analogy I heard was, um, you know, and they said we're all in the same boat or we're all in the same place was, well, we're not, but we're all in the same storm. I thought that was actually more insightful and could paint a picture that maybe people could, could understand because, you know, and you talked about people, I incredibly blessed. Um, you say, whether it's, it's not really due to planning, right? Who, who the hell planned for this? Nobody who mentioned that before, but I was able to keep my job, do work from home. My child is home, still trying to be educated. That was another, you know, that's hard for everybody. Um, but I don't have the economic duress that people who lost their jobs have. Even if they might get unemployment, it's when does it kick in? You know, when do you get assistance from the CARES Act? When does that arrive? Is it enough? People may have already been in financial duress before this started. You know, the poor just get poorer. They're at risk. Right. You mentioned not being able to contribute back because you can't, you can't volunteer anywhere easily. You know, it's, maybe it's out there. It's hard to find. Um, you're not really supposed to be out there. You know, well, and, and we things. struggled with this with design, understanding what's truly meaningful and a solution to a problem people actually have that you can help with versus forcing your aspect of helping, which may not be helping, right? And so that that's a hard one too. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that often. And so, you know, like what are, you know, whether it's the Department of Defense or the astronauts, it's like, what are the boots on the ground struggling with? What, what are really the problems that they need solutions for? Not the solution I want to push on them because I think it's a good idea. Or it's the cool thing I figured out. But is it, you know, it's like see a need, fill a need. You got to see it. You got to observe it. You got to ask about it. You have to really ferret out 
what people are struggling with, where are the real needs. Um, and sometimes I, you know, in, in some respects, we as a technical agency, you know, people wanted to bring their skills to bear. Like, let's turn this thing around and let's, you know, try to figure out what we can do to, to help COVID. And that's great. You know, again, that was another part of, I feel like I'm contributing to the solution. But my concern for some of the areas, um, and as someone who has authority over way, you know, work is allocated and, and, and supported by finances, it was, are we just adding to the noise? Because that's a problem too. So I was a little like, you know, let's talk about what solution you're really working on or who are the real helpers? Like who are the people I know that can actually have an impact and what help do they need from us? Yeah. And sometimes getting out of the way is helping. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I have a lot of friends who are physicians as you do and um, they, they needed to go do their thing. And you're like, what can I offload from you? You know, if I can go grocery shopping for you and just leave it at your door while you go do your job so to offload you from that mm-hmm. overhead, that's a simple thing I can do. You know, is it the best use of my degree? It doesn't matter. <laughs> that's what needed to be done. I can clean right. toilets with the best of them. <laughs> it was, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And, and I think that's the attitude everyone could have or should have come to the table. But it was also, well, what can I do? Because now I'm in my house. I don't know what options are out there right, and I feel a little right. lost. And, and what's, what's the difference between safe and unsafe? Yeah, especially when you go back to your personal risk and for your family. If I go out and volunteer, my, might I inadvertently bring something back with me um, that puts right. my family at risk? So you're running all of these risk trades all the time. And I think that's kind of where we kind of come back full circle. Like even when you flattened and fattened that curve, we're going to have a long haul of a different style of living. If we could reframe the problems for people, set some different expectations. And as you're an employer, I'm an employee employer. (laughs) Um, Also be very mindful of the humans we interact with and what they need. And if you put those people first, I always found like the amount they'll give back is tenfold. But I think taking some time back and saying, what if we only worked 30 hour work weeks as an expectation? Because you need more time to deal with your base needs at home with your family home with you. And then those 30 hours or 25 hours, whatever it is that you'll give me will be 10 times more productive because your mind will actually be at work versus mine has to go off to, well, what read, writing and reading assignment or math assignment does my son have? And when is this trumpet lesson? <laughs> Who's Cause you're actually doing more jobs right now. You're actually employed in like five different functions on a daily basis. Whereas before it was just, you know, maybe once in a while you helped and then you did your day job. But, you know, I think that's a incredibly valuable point, I think, to, to leave on, you know, in this podcast. Like I could talk to you forever, Jen. I've always loved uh, like our conversations because I think we, we, we get to the root of a lot of discussions that never make, make the light of day and people need to hear them because I think they need to understand how to make their world a better place. And I think also as practitioners in whatever industry we're in, whether it's space or us, you know, out nationally, you know, how can we take a step back and reevaluate what we think is reality and change the model so that it's better for us, it's safer for us, and we, we get more out of life, whether it's work and career or it's personal and, and mental health related? Yeah, I think the striving for balance, going back to human adaptation and the resilience of humans, I've always found I'm most productive when I feel I'm well-balanced. And that's a combination of things in my life. Um, and I want to get back and achieve a better balance so I can be a better wife, mom, uh, 
you know, <laughs> chief scientist or consultant or whatever it happens to be on what I'm doing. Cause I think that's when I bring the best of me. It's a diverse version of me. I'm creative in my thinking and I'm open to more ideas as opposed to when you're stressed and you're kind of hunkering down, you narrow in. And I know that's happening to a lot of people and we got to give them the opportunity to turn that fight or flight off, feel safe, and then open up their mind again and figure out a different path forward. And, and leadership, help educate leadership about what their options really are. Um, I think they get a lot of people talking at them as well. Um, but I think getting information out there, different ways of thinking of problems and, and being willing to question, um, again, what are your trusted sources? Where do I go for information? And, and you're free to go to more than one source. I think sometimes people forget about that, that it's um, as much as it's available on the interwebs, um, you definitely, there's nothing wrong with going and seeking opinions from others. Like I said, and challenge yourself every once in a while, intentionally go and read something that you think you're going to disagree with. Um, I, I try to do that pretty regularly because I do really truly believe in self-check. We, we touched very briefly on intrinsic bias, which I think could be another great podcast. <laughs> right, um, yeah. But that is another one where it takes a lot of self-awareness and, and it challenges you. Um, mm -hmm all of the time in many different ways. And if you don't continue to do that, I think you definitely get stuck in these ruts and you will just start finding stuff that only confirms. And that's when that is a big danger signal for me. You like, become, you become irrelevant after a while too. <laughs> yeah. I think naturally going you know, back to like survival, the fittest that if you cannot adapt or you will not adapt, you will, you will be outmoded in, in more than one way. And, um, right you know, industry is finding that out. Like if you just think this is the way we're going to go forward and arrogance, like no one can beat me at this because I'm the best or we're the best. It was like, really? Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> there, there's always, you know, it's like King of the Hill. There's always someone over there trying to knock you off, but it could be in such a subtle and different way. Um, so I think that self-checks and, and intrinsic bias are, are a very interesting topic that underlie a lot of what we talked about. And it's when you start pulling on that and checking yourself and really trying to find some diverse things to challenge your thinking is, is when you might make some breakthroughs. So yeah, I thank you I so much what, for having me. I could talk yeah, to you. Yeah. I was going to say, we might be bringing you back for another podcast. It sounds like, so, but you know, I think this was a great discussion and I, I think we brought up a lot of good food for thought for the audience and I'll, and I'll be interested to see what type of feedback we get from this episode and what questions are, are brought up from, from our audience. So I thank all of our listeners, listeners for tuning into this um, edition of the human odyssey podcast, battening the curve with Dr. Jen Fogarty. Thanks so much for joining us. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. The Human Odyssey is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. Find out more at sophicsynergistics.com. Get smart. Get Sophic smart. Get Sophic smart.